have a Bible, please turn with me to Hebrews chapter 4. I'm going to be in verses 14 through 16. And as you're turning there, in his novel, Great Expectations, Charles Dickens introduces us to a rather tragic character named Miss Havisham, a woman whose life is haunted by a single moment, abandoned and betrayed by her fiancé on what was to be their wedding day. Her life became indelibly uh, marred by the marriage that never was. And from the wedding dress to the single shoe she always wore, to the wedding feast that remained rotting on her table, to the clocks on her walls that always said 20 minutes to 9 o'clock. She was a woman frozen in time, stuck in a moment and haunted by the great expectations that never were. Friends, life can certainly have its disappointing and discouraging moments. Moments that wound us, that fracture us in more ways than we can count. Yet the question is, where will we go in those moments? What do we have to help us navigate our way through life's most discouraging and disheartening days? What do we have when our hopes are crushed, our dreams dashed, and instead our worst fears And deepest dreads are realized. Because like Miss Havisham, life from big things to small things can disappoint, discourage, and even disillusion us if we let them. In fact, if we allow them, they will consume every inch of us, embittering us towards others and even towards our God. And here's the thing. We all have dreams. We all make plans. We all have great expectations for how our lives, our years, our weeks, our days, our afternoons, our relationships should go and what they should look like. Yet often, life isn't what we planned, dreamed, or expected. Friends, discouragement and disappointments are inevitable in a broken world. So how are we to face them in Christ? And in many ways, those are the questions haunting the Hebrews. They're discouraged. They're disappointed. And disillusioning doubts are taking root and starting to to sprout up and grow in their hearts. A doubt that has sprung from a singular question Is Jesus really better? Because following him hadn't been so easy. They faced persecution, marginalization. They faced struggles and difficulties of all kinds. So they're wondering, is following Jesus really worth it? Is hitching my wagon to his train really going to work out in the end? Is Jesus really that much better than anything and everything else? Or should we just call the whole thing off? 
Should we just give up? Should we just take our ball and go home? And perhaps you find yourself asking some more questions, facing some more struggles this morning, wondering, is life with Jesus really better? Friends, our discouragements, our disappointments, they can come at us from any and all sides. And they will seek to stop us in our tracks, to freeze us in a moment in time, to get us to abandon ship, to turn our eyes from off of Jesus, and to look to anything and everything else for help and hope. But friends, the truth is that help and hope abide in only one source and in no other. Our help and our hope abide in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Apart from him, there is no salvation. Apart from him, there is no redemption from sin. Apart from him, there is no hope amidst life's greatest disappointments. Because, friends, the brokenness of our world, of our circumstances and situations, point us to the reality of a deeper and greater brokenness. Our broken relationship with the God who created us. And as Pastor Tim preached last week on Hebrews 4.13, which says this, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. The hard truth is that each one of us stand naked and exposed before a holy God, a God who knows us, and he sees it all, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And that one day soon, we will all stand before him and give an account for our lives. And in that moment, the circumstances and the situations of our lives, the struggles and the disappointments will matter very little in comparison to the ultimate question. Are we to be found in Christ or are we still lost in our sin? Yes, we have a God who sees the injustices and the brokenness of our world. That's why he sent his one and only son into this world. But he also sees the broken sinfulness within each and every one of us. And in that day, the only fact and figure that will matter about our lives will be this. Are you in Christ? Or are you still in your sin? Sin that precariously separates you from a holy God. The God who formed you and made you. And all of this serves as a necessary introduction into beholding the beauty and the glory of our passage for this morning. A passage that caused, caused Martin Luther to say this. First, the apostle terrifies us. And then he comforts us. So as we come to Hebrews 4, 14 through 16, how does the writer of Hebrews now seek to comfort us? Well, by showing us three things, the immensity of Jesus, the eminence of Jesus, and two imperatives for enduring in Jesus. So hear now God's word from Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. This is God's word. Since then... We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect 
has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Our first point this morning is the immensity of Jesus, seen in verse 14. So how does verse 14 show us the immensity of Jesus? Charles Spurgeon put it this way, We have a great need for Christ, but we also have a great Christ for our need. The truth is we face big issues, but we also have a big God. But oftentimes our struggle is to to truly believe that. To believe in the greatness and the glory of our Savior. Particularly when life goes off the rails. When our heads are left spinning or when life comes at us from sideways. It's easy to allow the canopy of our worries, our stress, and our anxieties to hide from us our great and glorious horizon of hope. A hope in a Savior who sovereignly and who providentially reigns and rules over all things. And herein lies the sticking point for the Hebrews. Their problems, their discouragements, and their disappointments seem and they feel bigger, more significant, and more powerful than their God. So they're toying with the idea of throwing in the towel, of giving up and returning from whence they came. So here in verse 14, the writer of Hebrews takes a moment to remind them of what is true. To remind them of what they have in Jesus. In fact, in the Greek, verse 14 begins with the word having, which the ESV translates, since then we have. In other words, the point the writer is getting at is don't you realize what's already yours? Don't you realize what you already have? Don't you Realize what you already possess in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. That he is your great high priest. And it is he who intercedes for you before the throne of God. See, brothers and sisters, we don't just have a high priest who intercedes for us with sacrifices. No, we have a great high priest who himself is the sacrifice. That his plea on our behalf is not based upon the blood of rams, goats, or bulls, but upon the merits of his own blood poured out for us. Therefore, he is a high priest that is infinitely greater and better than the high priest of the sacrificial system. In fact, what they were a shadow of, he is the substance. He is the real deal. He is the genuine article. So why would you go back to an imitation, to a mere shadow, when you can enjoy the real thing? Why would you eat furkey when you can eat turkey? Why would you eat fake when you could eat steak? Why don't you enjoy Jesus? And as we pick up this letter uh, back, uh, pick up this letter back in, in the new year, we will get, uh, uh, get the opportunity to delve deeper and deeper into this marvelous letter to Hebrews. And together we'll dig all the more into why Jesus' priestly ministry truly is so much greater and so much better than the priestly ministry found in the Old Testament, Testament sacrificial system. 
before this morning, I want us to see that his greatness as a high priest is because he has passed through the heavens. That Jesus didn't just simply pass through a veil of fancy fabric into the Holy of Holies like other high priests did. No, he passed through the heavens. In fact, according to Matthew 27, 51, at his death on the cross, that veil separating a holy God from sinful humanity was torn in two from top to bottom as a symbol and sign that in Christ we may enter into God's presence. See, Jesus is our great high priest because he passes through the heavens. And it is he who now sits on, at the right hand of God because our great high priest is Jesus, the Son of God, the Savior of our souls. See, amidst their distraction, discouragement, disappointment, and growing disillusionment with life, the Hebrews have lost sight of what they have in Jesus. So the writer of Hebrews graciously and gloriously reminds his audience of the greatness of Jesus. He reminds them of the glory and the grandeur of their Savior. So to apply this, where do you find yourself this morning? Has life left you discouraged? Has it left you disappointed? And if so, when was the last time that you were stunned by the glory, grandeur, and greatness of your Savior? Where does your focus lie? What are you fixated and fixating upon? Is it your struggles? Or is it upon your Savior? Because, friends, our struggles are real. But our Savior is truly stunning. That's what the Word of God shows us again and again and again. For Jesus is, as Colossians 1 tells us, the image of the invisible God. He is, as the author of Hebrews has already told us, the radiance of the glory of God. Jesus is, as he said, the light of the world. The light that shines, that radiates, even in the darkness. For darkness shall never overcome him. The canopy of life and its circumstances can often loom and gloom quite darkly over top of us. Yet the light of the world still shines. And the warming rays of his grace and glory still illuminate. They still pierce and permeate through even the darkest moments of our lives. All we need do is but look up. That we might behold him in all of his radiant glory. In all of the radiant glory of his greatness. That we might look to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask for or imagine. Which leads us to our second point, the imminence of Jesus, seen in verse 15. Verse 14 tells us of the immensity of Jesus and how he intercedes for us as our great high priest. And as we come to verse 15, we see the imminence of Jesus. Have a look down. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. See, this passage speaks to us about the imminence of Jesus, but it does so by making the point in the negative, which is odd unless we understand that our passage exists in the shadow of Hebrews 4.13. 4, 
and how the Word of God exposes us for who we really are. You see, in Genesis 3, just after Adam and Eve ate of the tree, it tells us that their eyes were opened and they saw that they were naked. So in response, they made for themselves fig leaves and then they sought to hide themselves from God. Yet God comes and he finds them. He draws near. You see, being left exposed is not a pleasant thing. And when we're exposed, we tend to insulate. We tend to hide. We tend to run away and try to find as many fig leaves as we can to cover ourselves up. Yet in the mess of it all, we have a God who has drawn near, who has come himself to find us. That in Jesus, we have a Savior who is great, who is glorious, but who also graciously draws near to his people. That he's the word made flesh, that tabernacle that dwelt among us. See, Jesus is the king of glory and the Lord of heaven. But he's also God incarnate, the word made flesh. That he entered into the muck and the mire of our world. That he might live as we should have lived. That he might encounter what we encounter. That he might experience what we experience. Namely, that he might live life in a broken world. And in doing so, be able to understand and sympathize with us as people. For he also lived a life where things don't work like they should. A life where people don't act like they should. A life where loved ones die. A life where close friends fail us, disappoint, and even betray us. A life where he would feel hunger and thirst. A life where he would grow tired and weary. A life where he would be tempted and tried as we are. And a life where he would suffer, as we see in Isaiah 53. That he would be a man of sorrows, that he would be pierced, that he would be crushed, and and that upon him would fall the wrath of Almighty God, wrath that our sins justly deserve, that upon him would fall the chastisement that has brought us peace in the gospel, so that ultimately by his wounds we would be healed For he navigated his way through the muck and the mire of our world, but he did so without sin. So that he would be our sacrifice. See, friends, we have a Savior who entered into the struggle of this life. That he might redeem us into a new life, eternal life with him. A life full of eternal hope. An everlasting joy, a life filled with purpose and meaning, yet this side of glory, a life of struggle and conflict against the world, the flesh, and the devil. A life that Jesus lived perfectly before us, yet also a life whose struggles, temptations, and discouragements he is well acquainted with, that he knows and understands, and therefore he is able to sympathize to care for, and to walk with and bear with us in our weaknesses. See, brothers and sisters, we have a Savior who knows us, 
a God who understands us in profound and meaningful ways, a God who was tempted and tried as we are, yet without sin, a God who draws near to us that we might draw near to him for all the fitness, all the strength that he requires is that we feel our need of him. Do you feel that need this morning? Do you feel your need for your Savior? If so, he invites you to draw near. Which brings us to our third point this morning. Two imperatives for enduring with Jesus. The first imperative from our passage is found at the tail end of verse 14. Let us hold fast to our confession. See, in light of the glorious greatness of Jesus that we should hold fast to our confession. But what exactly is this confession that he's referring to? What's the confession that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that Jesus Christ is the Lord and Savior of our lives? See, brothers and sisters, this confession is our bedrock. It's our true north. It's our, the anchor of our souls. It is the foundation upon which we build and construct our lives, our worldview our understanding for how to live our lives and how life works. That we must confess with our mouths and profess with our lives that Jesus is who he says that he is. That he is the Christ and that there is no other. For he is the Messiah. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the rest that our restless souls long for. Therefore, we must cling to, hold fast to, desperately seize a hold of such a great and glorious confession that though the world, the flesh, and the devil seek to disorient, distract, and disillusion us from such a great confession by God's grace, we cling all the more tightly to him You see, our struggles, our disappointments, our sufferings have a way of tempting us to latch on to the false hopes and the empty promises of our world. Promises that are full of great expectations, but are always lights on actual realizations. Promises that write checks for our lives that we'll never be able to cash. Yet friends, in our suffering. In our disappointment, in our struggles, God is providing us opportunities to cling to a Savior whose promises are true. So that as James tells us, that we can consider it all joy when trials and tribulations come upon us. You see, brothers and sisters, we may never, may we never lose sight of this glorious reality. That the boundless God has in his grace, mercy, and love bound himself to us, his people. That he's made promises, promises that are yes and amen in Jesus. Promises that though the stars may fall and crash in all around us, promises that will stand secure and be fulfilled, that they will come true. Promises whose realities we will enjoy, not just for a moment, Not just for a taste, but for all of eternity. 
So the question then becomes practically, how do we cling all the more tightly to our confession? Well, that leads us to our second imperative found in verse 16. Have a look down. So let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So how do we hold fast to this confession? How do we avoid neglecting such a great salvation? Well, by drawing near to the throne of grace. Yes, the author of Hebrews wants us to consider Jesus, to ponder and to reflect upon the glory and the greatness of Jesus. But he doesn't want us to stop there. He wants us to come to him, to draw near to him who is first drawn near to us. Yet what does it mean to draw near? It means to come close, to enter into his presence. You see, we draw near to Jesus because he is both the great and the gracious one. He is the immense, yet he's the imminent one. We draw near to Jesus because there is none like him. And as we draw near to him, what we discover is not a throne of merit, but a throne of grace. A place where we discover and experience the glories of the gospel. A place where we, despite the guilt and shame of our sin, we instead receive God's grace and mercy. Because Jesus, our Savior and our Redeemer, has taken upon himself the weight, the guilt, and the consequence of our sin. That we might rest secure in the robes of his righteousness. Robes that enable us by his grace to draw near, not with the spirit of timidity or fear, but with confidence. A confidence not based upon ourselves, but a confidence rooted and fruited in Christ. For in Christ we possess, we have the confidence of a child in the presence of their father. Friends, is this your confidence this morning? Because it's what the gospel is offering you. A confidence to boldly enter into the presence of God as a child. So do you know that confidence? One of the joys of having a toddler running around my home is getting to observe the freedom and the ease that she enjoys in my presence. Because while there are many things she is yet to learn, one thing she does know is that I'm her father and that she's my little girl which means I get the high privilege of hearing all of her quirky laughs and getting to see all those preciously goofy smiles smiles and laughs that few others will ever get to see because she's at home with me she knows who I am and in light of that she knows who she is brothers and sisters are we at home in the presence of Jesus I fear too often we approach the throne of grace like Esther before King Ahasuerus rather than in Christ approaching the throne with the confidence of a beloved child. So my question for us this morning is, are we drawing near? Are we drawing near to this throne of grace? Are, or are we really just trying to get things done ourselves? To take life by the horns? To pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. 
to get things taken care of and done ourselves. Because in drawing near to him, what we discover is the grace and the undeserved favor and the mercy, the undeserved forgiveness that we so desperately need to endeavor on and to endure in this great journey of faith. And brothers and sisters, along the way, we need timely help. And this timely help is not referring to something that we should only reserve for special occasions. This timely hope, this, this room of, 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 of grace, this throne room of God's grace, is not like the special china that our families use only at Thanksgiving or Christmas. This isn't referring to something that we only call upon for the big messes of life. No, the grace and the mercy of God are not occasional needs, but a daily and perpetual one. You see, every day is a day where we need the timely help of God's grace and mercy at work in our lives. So brothers and sisters, is the path to the throne room of grace well-worn and off-traveled? Because in Christ, we can never wear out our welcome. In Christ, the invitation abides for us to draw near, to come close that we might cling all the more tightly to him who is our confession and our one and only hope in life and death. So in conclusion, life can disappoint. It can discourage us. But in Christ, we have a Savior who ultimately never will. So in our disappointment, in our discouragements, in our pain, in our delusionment, delusionment with life, may we look to Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. Because in considering him and coming to him, we will discover that he is far more than just worth it. We will discover that he is the Lord of glory and that he is the God of grace. And as such, he will fill up our lives with the gifts of his mercy and grace that by them we may endure until he returns or he calls us home. For our God is a God who provides, who gives us exactly what we need for each and every day of our lives in order that we might endeavor and endure along this life of faith, through any and all of its messes, disappointments, and discouragements. So brothers and sisters, as we sang earlier, may we then venture on him and venture wholly. May we let no other trust intrude, for none but Jesus, none but Jesus can do helpless sinners good. We pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you that in Christ, though our problems be great, our God, our Savior, our Redeemer is greater. And that that greater Savior has drawn near to us. And he invites us as we come now to a table to draw near to him. So Father, in these coming moments, would you feed us and fuel us that we might endeavor on by faith in the person of 
and the work of Jesus Christ. We pray these things now in your son's name. Amen.